Well, it is a joy to gather together and hear from the Word of God. We are back to the book of Romans this morning. I know many of you are quite ready for that. And Lord willing, we'll be in Romans for some time. I heard an amen up here. The Mount Everest of the New Testament, really of the Bible. The theology that is expounded in Romans is such a blessing for us. It's the gospel explained and the gospel applied. It indeed is a book that if you study it, If you make it your life's work to study the whole Bible, of course, but to study Romans, you will understand more than ever how important Christ is to us, what he's done for us, and how we ought to live as Christians in this world. Today, I want to bring a message to you entitled, The Wrath of God Revealed. The Wrath of God Revealed. We're going to be in Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18 and finishing in verse 18 today. I used to joke, you know, we're going slowly and reminding you guys regularly. And a member came up and said, you know, Pastor, just stop saying that. It's okay. We're just going to be in Romans for a while. And so I'm not going to say that anymore. We are looking at Romans 1.18 today, but this does start a new section. So I want to read to you the rest of chapter 1. We have made it up through verse 17, and today we pick up in verse 18. The Apostle Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts, and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. What a convicting passage. Today's passage is really essential for us to understand. We, we have to get the understanding, the knowledge, we have to understand the theology of this passage to really comprehend the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
We've got to come to grips with what's being said here in chapter 1 and, and even in 2 when we get to the Jews there and the condemnation placed upon them. We must understand this theology so we can proclaim it, so we can tell others the bad news before we get to the good news. What we're really looking at today is the wrath of God. The wrath of God, a forgotten and ignored doctrine today. Probably the most forgotten and ignored doctrine today. Even in the early church history, second century, there was a guy named Marcion. He was a, a heretic and he decided with his group of people, he was going to cut out parts of the Bible. He cut out all the Old Testament, most of the New Testament. And he really didn't like the wrath of God. So he took off just those two words of God in English here. He took off that part and he just said the wrath is revealed because he did not like the thought of God's wrath. And even since then, many have wanted to admit, omit the word wrath completely from the Bible. Modern scholar C.H. Dodd in the 1970s said that God's wrath was not a personal wrath against sinners, but was an impersonal process of cause and effect. You go out, you sin, Something comes along that's bad in your life. That's all God's wrath is. It's not personal and that God is not punishing specific individuals for their sin against him. It was God's mercy, he said, in love that embraces all mankind. Therefore, God cannot be wrathful towards them. This was in, as I said, in the 70s, 50s, 60s, 70s. And since then, much of Christianity has picked up this idea goes way back to the early church history that God's wrath isn't truly all that bad. That God's wrath is something minor, something even that we can change the definition of. Popular Christian books like Rob Bell's Love Wins talked about where he explained the wrath of God and said, really, the Bible uses those words simply as a warning. It's just a warning. It's not as if God's wrath, Rob Bell said, is going to be poured out on people. It's not as if God's wrath is placed on people. But he said it's just a warning that Jesus and the apostles use to get people to obey. And this really doesn't even touch on the lack of preaching on God's wrath that we don't see today. There's, there's no preaching hardly on God's wrath. James Montgomery Boyce over 20 years ago said today's preaching is deficient at, at many points. That there's no point at which it is more evidently inadequate and even explicitly contrary to the teachings of the New Testament than its neglect of the wrath of God. And yet, here's Paul right in the beginning, really, of his theological arguments in Romans, talking about the wrath of God. Yes, he's given us the gospel in a summary. He's given us some hints of where he's going with the book. But here he is in the first major theological section of the body of this work. And how does he start? The wrath of God is revealed. The Bible has a lot to say about the wrath of God. A.W. Pink studied this. He wrote a book on God's attributes. And when talking about the wrath of God, he said a study of the concordance, which we use Bible software these days, but used to, you could get out the concordance and look up words like wrath, anger, fury. He said, if you study those words, anger, fury, and wrath of God, there are more than there is on God's love and tenderness in the Bible. There are more references to God's anger, wrath, and fury. He says, because God is holy, he hates all sin. And because he hates all sin, his anger burns against the sinner. Sure, this is a difficult doctrine. It's difficult for the world. Sometimes it's difficult for Christians to talk about. We don't want to be overly joyful that someone is going to be punished for their sin. Punished forever in hell. 
But it is a truth in the Bible. We do want justice to come about. We do want God's righteousness to prevail. This doctrine of the wrath of God is mentioned in some way in the Bible. One scholar said 470 times in the Bible. That's a lot of talk about God's wrath. And usually it's in warning. Not, not in the way Rob Bell said, just to get us to obey. It's actually real and it actually is happening now and will come again in the future even worse. But it's telling believers the wrath of God is coming and it's warning unbelievers, you better repent. You better repent and trust in Christ. This doctrine must be taught in churches. We, we really can't grasp how much God has done for us. By His grace and the gospel of Christ, we can't grasp that fully until we understand what He's saying here about God's wrath. Now let me back up and give you some context. It's been a while since we've been in Romans. At the very beginning of this series, I gave an overview of the book. And we just saw really in verses 16 and 17, the whole point of this book. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Romans is about the gospel. And he says he's not ashamed because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. You cannot be saved unless you believe in Christ alone for your salvation. Faith alone in Christ alone. He says the Jew first, also to the Greek. Now here's the summary verse. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. It begins with faith. It ends with faith. It's all about faith. As it is written, he quotes from the Old Testament. But the righteous man shall live by faith. So there was his summary. And he had been introducing himself as an apostle there at the beginning of the letter. He also prayed a prayer for them. He told them why he couldn't come to them. He's been praying to come. But God has hindered him from coming in God's providence. It wasn't time to go to Rome yet. So he's writing this letter to them. He wants them to understand really what the gospel's about. Not just the basics of the gospel. But everything he thinks is important to know about Christ and the righteousness of God and what God has done for us. And so now he starts the body of the letter here in verse 18. And really from 118 all the way through 425, the, the second major section here of the letter, that is all about one thing, the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel. The justification by faith alone is the heart of the gospel. And that is the point of the next few chapters. Now, he's going to talk about this in three different sections. First of all, the universal need of justification by faith. I'm just giving you an overview. You can see where we're going in the next few months as we look at these passages. There is a universal need of justification by faith. That's 118 all the way through 320. He wants to show the need of why we even need to be saved in the first place. What's the point? What are we being saved from? And in that, we'll look at three different subsections. First, the Gentile pagan. That's where we're starting today. That's the rest of chapter 1. Then he'll talk about the Jews. They're a special case in chapter 2, all the way through 3.8. And then all humanity and 3.9 through 20. Whether Jew or Gentile, all humanity, he summarizes in 3.10 by saying, there is none righteous, not even one. There's none. This is the bad news that he's going to cover for many paragraphs, many chapters. The bad news that we're not righteous. That in and of ourselves we can't be saved. That we're under the wrath of God. Then after that, he'll 
explain justification by faith. Just in a few verses at the end of chapter 3, 3, 1 through 29, he explains what it is, how it works. And then in chapter 4, he'll give the defense, the biblical defense of justification by faith. He's looking back to the Old Testament, looking back to Abraham to show us how this was worked out even before Christ came. What truly is at the heart of justification by faith. So this is the, as I said, the second major section of Romans. And we now zoom in today just to cover how he starts that section in verse 18. And this passage, he's going to give us the predicament. The predicament that we're all in, especially us Gentiles. In other words, those who do not have the scriptures. The Gentiles of Paul's day did not have a Bible. Many of us are Gentiles ourselves, but we grew up with Scripture. Some of us didn't, though. Some of us grew up more of an, in a pagan environment, more in a worldly environment. Maybe Christianity was out there somewhere, but wasn't in our home, wasn't with our parents. Maybe they gave some kind of assent to it, but it really wasn't being taught. And so we'll find ourselves today, both in chapter 1 and sometimes even in chapter 2, whether we're of Jewish descent or not, we will find ourselves being talked about here over and over. Because even if you're here today in Christ, you fit the description that Paul is going to talk about here. So let's now look at verse 18 with the help of three questions. First of all, what is being revealed from God against the world? What exactly is it that Paul is saying that is so bad we would need to look to Christ to save us? What is so bad? What is this wrath of God? Now remember in verse 17, he had just told us, that the righteousness of God is being revealed. It's being manifested. It's being given to those who have faith in Christ alone. So if the righteousness of God has been revealed and given to those who have faith, then what about everyone else? This is that age-old question. What about everyone else that is not a believer? Where do they fit? Because there's really only two groups. Jesus said, you're either for me or against me. You're either with me or against me. There's really only two groups, the saved and the unsaved. And Paul's now talking about the unsaved and why we all need. Every person who has not come to Christ needs the righteousness of God through faith in Christ. So what's being revealed here? Well, he says, for the wrath of God from heaven. This word for connects back to verse 17. There is a parallel statement. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. So the righteousness of God comes to those who have faith, but the wrath of God comes on everyone else. He's just saying, look, God's gospel is being proclaimed. Christ has come into history. He's given us his righteousness if we have faith. But the bad news is, if you haven't come to faith, the bad news is for all those people out there, they're under the wrath of God. In other words, the the gospel is necessary for all mankind. Why do we send missionaries out? Why do we take the gospel to our neighbors? Why do we want people to come to saving faith? Because they're under the wrath of God. It's actually being revealed, being manifested right now upon them. So God is revealing something to all mankind. Especially Paul has in mind here the Gentiles, the Gentile world. God reveals his wrath to them. And because this doctrine is so misunderstood, we need to get a definition of the wrath of God. What is the wrath of God? What exactly are we talking about when we say in verse 18 that the wrath of God is being revealed? 
from heaven. Well, the MacArthur Study Bible simply defines the wrath of God as the settled, determined response of a righteous God against sin. It's settled in God's mind. It's something he's determined to do because of who he is. And he is a righteous God who will respond against sin. John Murray, the theologian of the last century, said, Wrath is the holy revulsion. That's a good term. God is revulsed. The holy revulsion of God's being against that which is the contradiction of His holiness. Everything against God's holiness, sin, is a contradiction to His holiness. And so He is revolted by that. He will act to make sure that does not continue into eternity. Now, I really like the systematic theology by Beaky and Smalley where they define God's wrath as His holy hatred to punish all who transgress His law. His holy hatred to punish all who transgress His law. And they go on to state that God's wrath is really an exercise of His love. We don't think about that much. We don't stop and say, you know, God's wrath is an exercise of His love. But if you stop for a moment and just think, God's love to glorify His own name, to do everything to glorify His name, really cannot tolerate anything against that. If God has an intense love to glorify His name, we might say a jealousy, a zeal for His name. How can He tolerate anything against that? They go on to say, His infinitely intense righteousness towards all who oppose Him is His wrath. And they say, genuine love must hate evil. Genuine love must hate evil. Think about it. You're a Christian. You're supposed to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And that means in turn that you'll what? You'll hate evil. That you'll hate sin. That when you commit sin, you hate that. You're broken by it. You're torn up by your own sin. Well, it's even more so with God. He is perfectly holy. He has never sinned, never will sin. He is pure. Pure holiness. And He does everything for the sake of His name. He does everything to glorify Himself into eternity. And He cannot look upon sin. He cannot continue to let sin exist without punishment. That would be an unjust God. That would be the God of the pagans who was very fickle. Whatever you did that day, you could convince your God to do what you wanted. That's not the God of Scripture. That's not the true God. And God has an eternal zeal for the glory of His name. And so He exercises an intense righteousness, a wrath towards all who oppose Him. Now sometimes people will say, well, that's fire and brimstone. Preacher, that is fire and brimstone. That's the Bible. It's the Bible, and we have to preach it. We have to proclaim that truth. It's there over and over and over in Scripture. Now, I'm sure there are people who take that, and that's all they preach on. And maybe there was a time in our country when people preached on that topic all the time and not other things like God's grace and the gospel. But we're just going passage by passage through Romans, and this is really where Paul starts His theological argument. Now we don't need to think of God's wrath as some sort of outburst of anger. Some sort of passion that he suddenly just bursts out in. A sinful rage. Often we think of people who have wrath or rage. Humans. This is not God. We have sin mixed with our anger. When we are angry, often it's not a righteous anger. It's very rare that we have a righteous anger like Jesus did when he overturned those tables of the money changers. 
We have sin mixed in. Sin motivation, sinful thoughts. We go beyond the limit sometimes of righteous anger. Not God. He's perfect. He has no mixing of sin. No darkness mixed with light. One commentator said, divine love is not lust. See, even when we love, sometimes there's lust mixed in. He says, divine love is not lust and divine anger is not rage. Uncontrollable rage. It's settled. It's determined. God's wrath is the necessary and appropriate response to creatures who reject their creator and they spurn his mercy. What is God to do with someone who rejects him? Think about that on a theological level. What what is a creator who's perfect and holy going to do with his creation that rejects him? How is he to respond? Because all mankind since the fall is sinful. All mankind is under the wrath of God. Go forward with me to Ephesians and let's look at some passages there in Ephesians where Paul also makes this very clear. By the way, Ephesians is often called the Little Romans because it's a smaller book that talks about some of the same themes that Romans has. Ephesians 2 verse 3. Look at how Paul describes this. Among them, talking about those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. That's the whole world until they come to Christ. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind. We were by nature, by nature, children of wrath, even as the rest. And then he goes on to say, but God being rich in his mercy because of his great love. And he talks about how God saved us from being children of wrath by nature. That's who we are in our nature. He says, you're born this way. You're born with a sinful nature. You desire to sin. We see it happen as soon as the kid is old enough to throw a fit. We're all, he said, children of wrath. Born under God's wrath. Now go to chapter 5, verse 6. He brings us back up again in Ephesians. Let no one deceive you with empty words. There's a lot of deception going on even today in the church. And there was in that day as well. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. The things he just mentioned in the previous paragraph. All the sins that characterize the world. He says the wrath of God is coming on the sons. Again, this idea of naturally being a son of disobedience. And then the wrath of God comes upon them. He says, do not be partakers with them. This describes the natural world. This describes who we are when we're born. I know you'd like to think you were the most holy little saint ever when you came out of your mother's womb. But I hope by now you realize that's not the case. I remember we had our third or fourth child in a church that preached the Bible and taught us these truths. And some old woman came up. She had to be 85 and said, that's a cute little sinner you just gave birth to there, to my wife. And it's true, though. I mean, it wasn't probably the best time to do that right after the baby's been born, but it's true. So what kind of wrath is Paul talking about? Because wrath is used in different ways in the Bible. There's various ways that God's wrath is displayed. Overall, we could define his wrath, as I said, as a settled, determined hatred for sin. Hatred for those who transgress his law. Well, there are many ways that wrath is described in the Bible. There's eschatological wrath. That's, these are theological terms, but theologians say there's eschatological wrath. That's the day of the Lord. That's when God's wrath comes upon the earth. And destroys all those who are against him. All the things and structures and people who are against God. 
the day of the Lord that is coming. There's also God's eternal wrath. Eternal wrath is hell. Eternal punishment, the wrath of God being poured out in hell forever and ever upon those who sin and do not come to Christ. There's also cataclysmic wrath, the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah. Even today, God says in scriptures he is doing things today to show his wrath in the forces of nature. There's also consequential wrath. God's wrath is revealed in the principle of sowing and reaping. And then leaving people to the devastating effects of their own sinful choices. So there's those types of wrath. Day of the Lord, the eternal, the cataclysmic, the consequential. That's not what Paul's talking about here. He'll go on, as I read the the section there, to define what he's talking about. But essentially it's abandonment wrath. In other words, God can pour out his wrath just simply by stepping away and letting sinners go their own path. Letting sinners go their own way into sin. This is where God abandons the sinner, turning him over to the unhindered pursuit of his sin. God allows people to go their own way into deeper sin. God forsakes the one who has repeatedly forsaken him. Pharaoh hardens his heart. God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh hardens his heart again. God hardens Pharaoh's heart again. And so on. Until Pharaoh's whole army is wiped out and all the firstborn are dead. In Egypt. Other passages in scripture that talk about God's wrath of abandonment. And this is really scary when we think about it. Psalm 81 verse 11. But my people did not listen to my voice. And Israel did not obey me. So I gave them over to the stubbornness of their heart. To walk in their own devices. He gave them over. We'll see that language mentioned three times. And the rest of chapter 1 here. When we come to those passages, that's scary. What that means is that if you're a sinner outside of Christ and you're running headlong into your sin, God could just give you over. And he is. To all those in the world, just let them go on. Proverbs chapter one, verse 24, because I called and you refused. I stretched out my hand and no one paid attention. You neglected all my counsel and did not want my reproof. I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your dread comes. Now here Solomon is just talking about people who don't take his advice. But the idea also in scripture is that because we don't listen to God, because we don't follow him, because we don't do as he says, then we are abandoned by him. Unless, unless he brings the gospel, you hear the gospel, you believe, you have faith. But Paul's going to get there. It's going to take a few chapters. I know we've got to spend some weeks in sin and wrath. How many weeks in God's wrath? I don't know yet. But we need to understand this. It's so important. One more. This is probably the most to the point passage. Hosea 4.17. He's talking about the nation of Israel and the northern kingdom. And he says Ephraim. That's his abbreviation basically for the northern kingdom of Israel. Ephraim is joined to idols. That's their sin. Let him alone. Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. Let him go into his sin. Now God's wrath, Paul says, is revealed from heaven. Reveal. This this verb here means, it can mean bringing a truth to your mind, like the Holy Spirit reveals truth from Scripture. 
But it can also mean manifested an action, in other words, in history. And that's what he's talking about here. The righteousness of God has come in Christ, and Christ has come in actual history to the world. God's wrath is something that God has been doing. Something that God has been doing in history, in the world, since the fall. Just like God's righteousness came in Christ, God's wrath came right after the fall. And the verb here is in the present tense. It's in the present tense. It's ongoing. Sometimes you read this and you wonder, is this what's already happened with the Gentiles? Are we done with that? I mean, all you got to do is look at the world and see we're not done with that passage in history. But we want to look to Scripture and see what it tells us with the grammar. And it's an ongoing present here. It's continuing. It's repeating, you might say, in history over and over and over. And it's coming from heaven. It's very clear here where the wrath comes from. It's not coming from men. It's not coming from stumping your toe and it hurting. That's not God's wrath. It's God's punishment of sin coming directly from heaven. The idea here is wherever you're at under heaven and not under the gospel, God's wrath is coming upon you. What a serious topic. How does this take place? And we'll be looking at this in detail later, but how does this revealing of God's wrath take place over and over in history? Skip with me to chapter 1, verse 24. I will just get a preview. Because we're not going to talk about how today, other than just reading this once again. Look at 24 through 28. Therefore God gave them over. There it is, abandonment. God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. So he, he gave them over to idolatry because they turned away from him and wanted to worship these things. He said, you can go ahead, let them alone. Verse 26, for this reason, because they were worshipping idols, God gave them over to degrading passions. And he goes on to describe homosexual desires and acts here. Verse 28, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. And he goes on to list all of those sins. This isn't God's wrath in the future that's coming. That's coming and it's going to be bad. This isn't eternal wrath in hell. That's going to be horrible and terrible into eternity. This is God's wrath right now. In other words, how is God punishing sin in America, in Texas, in this area right now? By just stepping back and abandoning people in their own sin. And it's not just America. It's all over the world. People don't like this idea of God's wrath, but we have got to understand it. We've got to have a proper fear of God, even as Christians. We're not under this wrath. You've been saved in Christ. You're not under this. But you need to know what's happening with the rest of mankind. And you need to know so you can have a heart for them, so you can have a passion for them. And you need to know where you once were as well. That's why Paul is writing to Christian Romans here. The Roman church needs to understand where they came from. And they would read this section and they would say, that was me, worshipped idols, did whatever I wanted. Well, let's ask the second question here. Who is God's wrath being revealed against? 
who is God's wrath being revealed against? That's an important question. I mean, if it's that bad, don't you want to know who it is? Now, I've said the world, I've said mankind, but Paul is more specific. And we need to see here that God intensely hates all sin and sinners. I know you've heard it said, and I have too, God hates the sin but loves the sinner. And that's fine if we speak of it from our standpoint, that we are to hate sin but love sinners. That is true. The problem by saying that's God's prerogative is the Bible says something quite different. Now think about it. Does God just punish sin as if it's out there somewhere? What does God punish? Who does God punish? He punishes sinners. And God's punishment is God's wrath. And God's wrath is hatred towards sin and sinners. This is in Scripture, Psalm 5.5. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. Psalm 5.5. Psalm 11.5. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. And the one who loves violence, his soul hates. In other words, the wrath of God comes upon people. It's people who will spend eternity in hell for their sin. It's not this amorphous idea, this cloud out there that's called sin that gets sent to hell. It's actual people who do sin. Now, God has a general love for mankind. You find that in Scripture. You can look at all the references about God's love. And it's only God's love for us that we were even saved. But when it comes to people who never repent, they never trust in Christ. God has a hatred for them as well in the sense of judgment, punishment. So look at what Paul says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That's everything. All the sins that you can think of are included in those two words right there. Ungodliness and unrighteousness. Ungodliness means impiety. That's a lack of reverence for God. A lack of worshiping the one true God. Mankind's vertical relationship with God himself. In other words, man's in active rebellion. See, the thing about God's wrath coming upon sinners and punishing them, it's not as if sin happens by mistake. We actively choose to sin. Mankind actively sins. Yes, they're born with a sin nature, but they actually choose to sin out of that sin nature. And we sin directly against God by not worshiping Him, by not worshiping Him rightly, by turning to other things. Really, idolatry, you could put that there. Idolatry in all its senses. Because anything we turn to other than God and trust in that, that's idolatry. The other word, unrighteousness. Just a general word used for all the sins of mankind. But I think in this passage, since he's already talked about the vertical relationship, most people think this is more the horizontal relationship. The unrighteous deeds, the evil actions that we take against others. The harm we cause others. The evil thoughts we have about others. You could translate this word wickedness, injustice, immorality, evil deeds. Yes, they're sins against God. They're sins against God as well. But they involve other people. This is an act of assault against God's moral order. When God created the universe, he set it up in such a way that we all knew and still know what is right and what is wrong. 
He'll talk about this more in chapter 2 when he talks about the Jews versus the Gentiles. And he'll say, look, everyone has a law in the heart of right and wrong. Essentially, everyone knows what is right. Even cultures who've never heard of the God of Scripture, we've never gone to them yet and, and preached from the Word, they still know right and wrong. They still have laws. They still have moral order in some sense. Why? Well, the passage will tell us, the rest of this chapter will tell us that God put it there. God has clearly put a sense of right and wrong in the hearts of all people, and yet they continue to sin against God in their actions. Why? Well, he'll get to that. That's the next question we'll look at in a bit. But there's ungodliness, there's unrighteousness, and this is what Jesus is talking about in John 3.19, or, or John's writing about Jesus. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. Why didn't they love Christ when he showed up? Because their deeds were evil. It wasn't because they didn't have the mind to comprehend what he was saying. It wasn't because they didn't want to be blessed in heaven forever. Of course, everybody wants that if they can get their way. No, because their deeds were evil. To turn to Christ means you've got to turn away from your evil deeds. And that is so hard for prideful man to do. To turn away from your sinful actions that you have committed in the past and present and turn to Christ. Now notice Paul says that God's wrath is against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. You See that word all there? It extends to all mankind. Everyone. No one gets out of this. No one. I mean, even the Jews have the wrath of God on them, the unbelieving Jews. But even more so because they have the scriptures. That's chapter 2. But no one gets out of this. All have sinned. All have fallen short and continue to fall short of the glory of God. We all need God's righteousness. That's the point he's getting at. It's going to take him a while to get there. But we all need God's righteousness. If we don't have it, we're under wrath and will be forever. There's no exceptions. All ungodliness and unrighteousness. It's total. No one's overlooked here by God. There's not some minor sin where God says, you know, that's a minor sin. I'll let that go. Every sin, unless we're in Christ, every sin counts against us. All sin is wicked. And it's treason against the high God of heaven. We, we must be punished for it. It's, it's a plague upon mankind. Think about it. There's a lot of concerns about diseases and how they're spread today. This is a plague that everybody starts out life with. And the only way to get healed is by the great physician, Jesus Christ. The Puritan Ralph Venning wrote a little book. Today it's called The Sinfulness of Sin. We have it in our bookstore, but original title was The Plague of Plagues. Talking about sin and how sinful it is. It's the plague of plagues. This describes all believers before we're saved. But you know what? This is the type of people Christ came to save. This is why there's hope in the gospel. Romans 5, 6, he'll tell us, While we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. He died for the ungodly. This is where we were. We shouldn't just think about the world and say, it's pitiful, you know, that's bad. Got to preach the gospel. That's where we were before we were saved. We were ungodly. We were unrighteous. And sometimes we still try to act like the world in doing those things. And so we've got to live as God has called us to. Thirdly, the big theological question. The one that's going to go over into next week, really. Why is God's wrath being revealed against all mankind. We've talked about what is it. We've talked about who it's going against. But the why question is always important in Scripture. Why is this here? And why is God 
doing this. Well, we know whatever he does is good and righteous. But he explains it to us. He tells us here, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. People who experience God's wrath, it's not because they've missed out on something. There is a truth and they know the truth. And Paul says they have suppressed it in unrighteousness. What is this word truth? What does he mean by it here? Well, in general, the truth is that which corresponds to reality. So whatever is real, that's the truth. And the reality here is that every single man or woman who's ever lived has a knowledge of God. Everyone. Look at verse 19. What does he say? Sometimes it's hard for us in the modern world because we've forgotten this. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. Who's he talking about? Americans? People who grew up in a Christian home? No, he's talking about Gentiles. He's talking about pagans who've never heard the gospel. But he still says God put something within them so that they would know him. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world is invisible attributes, his eternal power, divine nature has been clearly seen since the beginning of the world. Not just when Christ came, since the beginning, these things about God have been clearly seen. They've been understood through what has been made. And he says they're without excuse. God did it that way. He designed it that way. And there's no excuse. There was something about God that they knew that they did not act upon. That they suppressed. What is that? Well, there, there is a God. Everybody knows that. Even if they try to deny it. Even the atheists try to deny it. But even their name is essentially no God. Even within their name is the word theist. And all they do is talk about how there is no God because they hate him. There is a God. He is the creator of all things. He is powerful. More powerful than anything or anyone else. And he made everything. That's the truth. He's eternal because there's nothing outside of God that can bring him into existence. And therefore, we must glorify him. Look at verse 21. Here is the suppression right here. For even though they knew all these things, even though they knew God, they did not honor. And really glorify is the more accurate term here. If you got an LSB, it says glorify. They did not glorify him as God or give thanks. What's the truth? God created us. And he put it in us that we would know him. And he put creation around us so that we would at least know that he exists and that we should glorify him and give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. That's what he's saying. There's a truth about God that's known by everyone. And they didn't want to hear it. They didn't want to hear it. Sinful mankind wants to suppress it. Literally, the word here is to hold it down. Mankind holds down this truth. They try to keep it from affecting their lives. The best analogy is I've heard here is of a beach ball. And a kid tries to get on top of the beach ball and make the beach ball sink. But it just keeps coming back up. They really can't do anything because they're, they're not weighing enough. And even if they get it down a little bit, it's still holding them up now. This is mankind trying to suppress the truth. Let's keep this thing hidden. Let's tuck it down and forget about it. And how does he say the world does this? By living an unrighteous life. You see, again, in unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. Men push down the truth. They ignore it. They twist it. They mock it. They fight against it with all their might so that they can continue in their sin. Let's push that truth down. 
I don't want to hear about it. You might have even talked to people about Christ, about God, about the Bible. And they've told you, I don't want to hear any more of it. Why? I mean, if it was a fairy tale, they would listen to it and just go on. It wouldn't bother them. Why do people get so angry at the gospel, at scripture, at God? Because Paul says they're suppressing the truth. Sinful humanity opposes the idea of a holy God because they know, they know in their hearts that such a God would hold them accountable for sins. It's the biggest obstacle to coming to Christ. It's just admitting you're a sinner and you need a Savior. That there's nothing good in you that's going to save you. We see this played out over and over in our world today. This very passage, this very verse, this suppression of the truth over and over. Evolution. Evolution teaches basically that there is no creation by God. It's mocked. It's an unenlightened concept to think of creation by God. Abortion. The unborn child is not actually a person. They mock that truth. Just fetal tissue. Think about how this truth that there is a life in there is being suppressed by so many. Sexual immorality. God has not spoken authoritatively about sexual immorality, the world says. It's no big deal. God just wants us to be happy. Do whatever you want with whoever and whatever you want as long as someone doesn't die from it. Suppress the truth. Do what I want. Suppress the truth. Live in sin. Sexual immorality. You know, God hasn't really talked about that. Do whatever you want. Whatever you want. Marriage. It's not about what God has created and declared holy. It's all about love. It's all about love. And you can marry whoever you want. Men and women can get married. Two men can get married. Two women can get married. Your cat can get married to you. Your dog can get married to you. This is real stuff happening in the world. Suppress the truth of marriage. Gender. God did not create two genders, they say. Not, not man and woman. Gender is determined by each person and is fluid. For many years now, Facebook has 58 choices on gender. 58 different choices. You can be pan-gender on there. You can be two-spirit gender. I'm not sure what that is. And then there's an option just to fill in the blank for other. 58 choices. Liberal Christianity. Suppression of the truth. God did not give us an inspired, inerrant word, they said. Mankind is not sinful. Everyone is saved, they say. Church is whatever you want it to be. There is no hell. God is never wrathful. It's right here in Scripture. And even if we don't have Scripture, Paul says, we know something about God. That He exists. And that we are to glorify Him and give thanks. But remember this as we close. God said of Himself that He is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Yes, He's abounding in grace and mercy, but also He's abounding in truth. There is a truth. And we thank the Lord for that truth that now that we're saved. Psalm 40, 11, Your loving kindness and your truth will continually preserve me. The Apostle John said of Christ that he was full of grace and truth. If we love the truth, then we love Christ. And if we love Christ, we love the truth. Jesus said in John 8, 32, and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. We don't want to suppress the truth as Christians. The Holy Spirit's called the spirit of truth in John 14. Jesus in John 17 prays, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. So the wrath of God is his hatred towards sin. And he will punish sin in various ways. 
and into eternity. And he's bringing that wrath right now already against mankind because they are unrighteous and they are ungodly. And the reason why? They suppress the truth. They're without excuse. No sinner has an excuse. They just simply don't. So we need to remember that. And if you're here today and you're not in Christ and you feel the burden of this passage, then you need to turn to him. You're under God's wrath right now. You've already felt it in your life. You probably realize that. But turn before it's too late and you have to feel it forever. The worst wrath into eternity. I'm reminded of a great Puritan talking about God's wrath. He says, do not think, O sinners, that you finally escape God's wrath. Talking about the unbelieving sinner. He said, God's mill goes slow, but it grinds small. The more admirable his patience and bounty now is, the more dreadful and unsupportable will that fury be, which arises out of his abused goodness. God is good and people abuse it is the idea. Nothing is smoother than the sea, yet when stirred into a tempest, nothing rages more. Just so, nothing is so sweet as the patience and goodness of God, and nothing is so dreadful as his wrath when it takes fire. Repent now while there's time. And believer, turn to Christ. Even if some of your sin lately matches the suppression of the truth, which all sin does, turn once again to Christ. Yes, God has saved you, but we stumble. We want to act like the world. We drift back off into suppression of the truth. Turn back to Christ. Be assured and love him all the more. Let's pray now. Lord, thank you so much for a passage like this. We need to be confronted with the truth. It's not a happy topic that a lot of people want to hear about, but it is the truth of your word. And we want to hear what you have to say in Scripture. Help us to love the lost so much as we read this passage that we want to take the gospel and support others going out to proclaim it. Help us as Christians to live a life of righteousness and godliness. We ask your help in this. In the name of Christ, amen.